Thanks for joining today for Chumash Climax. Today we are going to look at the final verses, in a sense, of Parshas Vayera. And we're going to examine one of the strangest phenomenon in the entirety of the Torah. The concept of Yitzchak's ashes. I'm not exaggerating. Yitzchak's ashes are actually spoken of and apparently have been viewed multiple times over the generations. How can that be? Yitzchak was never burnt. And even if there were ashes, they would have been scattered long ago. We're talking about more than 37 centuries. Welcome to Chumash Climaxes, the final verses of Parshas Vayera. Let me begin by evoking the words of the Mishnah. In Mesechet Avot, the fifth chapter, in the third Mishnah, our sages encapsulate the life of Avraham Avinu. And the encapsulation is about nisyonot, tests. The language that the Mishnah uses is, Asara nisyonot nitnasa Avraham Avinu. There were ten tests by which our father Abraham was tested. And the Mishnah tells us, V'omad b'chulam. He withstood them all. And this is for the purpose of to broadcast or demonstrate the greatness of our father Avraham Avinu's love for God. Now the Maharal of Prague says that the average person is capable of withstanding certain types of tests, but not others. That is to say, for one, the test will be poverty. For another, the test will be great affluence. For one, the test will be pain, and yet for another, the test might be lust, cravings, or desires. Hashem tests each and every one of us in accordance with our own soul power, with our own personality. It is tests that make us stronger. It is these kinds of challenges that enable us to demonstrate our metal, our spiritual courage, and to reveal a latent potential. But Avraham Avinu, says the Maral, was tested in a variety of ways. And the fact that he withstood 10 tests, and the Mishnah emphasized the notion of 10, which is called Mispar HaSholem, that's the complete number, if you will. Also, although Maral doesn't speak about it here, reflective of the mystical, Kabbalistic notion of Eser Sfirot, which represents the full range or gamut of the spiritual schematic of one's wherewithal and ability, from intellectual to emotional to functional and actualization. This proved that Avraham Avinu's righteousness was all-encompassing. And the fact that he was undaunted by any kind of test and withstood them all, regardless of the nature of that particular test, indicates the overwhelmingly complete love of Avraham Avinu, the absolute dedication and devotion of the first Jew to walk the face of the earth. Now the Rebbe points out that we, as the children of Avraham Avinu, should expect tests. But we must know that just as our father was tested, 
and he had the ability, the wherewithal, to withstand the tests, we will not be given tests that we cannot withstand. But we will have to marshal every ounce of our spiritual fiber in order to succeed. Now, of course, God foresees the future. It isn't as if God has to test Avram to see what he will do, past, present, and future do not exist when you speak about God. So what's the purpose? What's the point of testing Avram in order to see what? Maral talks about this also, and he says that the purpose of the test is actually to bring forth and actualize the latent potential encoded and tucked into the folds of the magnificent soul that Avram Avinu was given. The given Avram Avinu these tests According to Rabbi Moshe Alaskar, God also demonstrated to the world His greatness. Anticipating the question, why is it? Why is it, God, that you favored Abraham? Why is it that you favored His children and selected and chose them above others? And the answer is evident, self-evident, by virtue of Avraham Avinu's tests and the fact that he withstood them all. What are or were Avraham Avinu's 10 tests? According to Rashi, and this is not clear at all, there's a dispute amongst the Rishonim, but according to Rashi, the first test was the fact that Avraham Avinu had to hide for 13 years for Nimrod, who was continuously searching for him. It was not a search and rescue mission. It was a search and destroy. Nimrod had instructed his secret service to find the child and kill him. The second was when Avram Avinu was finally apprehended, he was thrown into a fiery furnace. For 13 years hiding in a cave, Avram Avinu never wavered in his faith, never questioned why it was that he was facing such opposition and experiencing such suffering. I mean, after all, if God's real, why would Avram suffer on account of his devotion to God? Avram did not waver as they threw him into that fiery furnace. But of course, miraculously emerges intact. The third major test is that Avram Avinu was advanced aged, already what you would call today a senior citizen. He left Ur-Kazdim. He traveled to a place which is called Charon. He established himself, reinvented himself, created a monotheistic revival that was wildly successful. And then at age 75, God comes and says, Lech Lecha, I want you to leave your native land undisclosed location. I'll let you know. Avram doesn't waver. Doesn't waver for a moment. And then when he finally does come to that land, the fourth test is that upon his arrival, suddenly on his heels, economic collapse begins to visit that very country. And he finally fulfilled the will of God coming to the land that God asked him to be in. And he was forced to leave almost immediately upon arrival. Didn't question. Coming into this new land called Egypt, his wife is abducted by none other than the king himself. But although Sarah was taken to the Pharaoh's home, Avraham didn't question, didn't blink an eye and didn't flinch. Later, Lot is taken captive. Avraham Avinu does what must be done, never wavers in his strength, in his spiritual stamina, in his faith or conviction. The seventh test was when Avraham Avinu receives a prophecy, a major prophecy. It's called the Covenant of the Parts. 
And here he was informed that his children would suffer greatly. Fromm did not ask questions. He accepted that which God had ordained. The Egyptian exile was brutal and horrific, and Avram was informed of it in advance and did not question. The eighth challenge or test was when Avram, at age 99, received the divine command to circumcise himself, his son Yishmael, and everybody in his household. We talked about this a little bit in our previous class. The ninth test is when Avraham, the paragon of kindness, is forced to send Hagar and Yishmael away, his own wife and child. And that's a subject for another day, an enormously difficult test for Avraham, specifically because it touches on his most sensitive and most painful kind of experience. The tenth and the final test is the Akedah, which brings us to this week's Torah portion. This week's Torah portion essentially is the second Torah portion recording the life of our father Abraham, and it climaxes, it ends with the Akedah and, pun intended, its postmortem. And so, my friends, I'm going to ask you to take a look with me at the final verses of the Parsha. Avram Avinu brings Yitzchak upon the altar. He binds Yitzchak. He reaches for the knife. He's prepared to do whatever it's going to take, if that's what God wants. And suddenly, God says, no, no, that's okay. You can take him right down now. I just wanted to see if you'd be willing to put him onto the altar. And so Avram Avinu then raises his eyes and he sees a ram. He slaughters the ram, and as Rashi says, he does so so that he would earn the blessing of God by not only passing the test as in readiness to bring an offering, but actually to bring a proverbial sacrifice, to bring the actual ram as an offering. And that's how the Akedah ends. Avram Avinu's actions conclude in verse In verse 13, it concludes with, Avraham offers it up as an ascent offering in the place of his son. As Rashi tells us, Every detail that Avraham Avinu did to this little ram, Avraham Avinu did it as if he was performing it on his own son, the slaughtering the flaying of its skin, the burning it, and Avram prayed, may it be Hashem's will that this act be considered as if it was done to my son. Now, the final thing Avraham does, and this is in a way the climax of the parsha, because here is where Avraham's role comes to an end. From verse 15 onward until the end of the parsha, we hear an angel speaking. We hear an angel blessing Avraham Avinu. Avraham Avinu departs the area together with his youths that accompanied him, and he goes back to Be'er Sheva, but that's no longer really Akedah. It's like, this is where he goes next. And then we hear the biblical narrative that describes the circumstances of the birth of Rebekah, the next matriarch of the Jewish people. But Avraham, at the climax of the Akedah, this is the high point of the 10th and final test. 
This is Avraham Avinu's spiritual zenith. And the verb is Vayikra. Avraham Avinu now calls out. Now, the word Vayikra can mean to call. People also use the phraseology name call or calling somebody's name. Avraham calls out or names the place. This is the conclusion of the Akedah. Vayikra Avraham, Avraham calls out or calls Shem Hamakom Hahu, the name of that place. So Avraham Avinu names the site. This is the final act of devotion, of holiness. This is the climax of Avraham Avinu's spiritual journeys. He names the site. What does he call it? He says, Hashem Yire. Literally, God will see. He names the site, God will see. Asher Yeomer Hayoim. As it is said, Hayom means until this very day, Bahar Hashem on the mountain of God, Yeroeh, he will be seen. Or, he will reveal himself. Let's take a look in Rashi. What's going on when Avraham Avinu suddenly calls the mountain a name? Of what relevance really does that have? Why is it so important for Avraham Avinu to name the place? It's not as if he's registering this name with some municipal council or creating a name in which we will now know that it was recorded. There was nobody there. There was no audience. Only Yitzchak could have heard this. Why was it important for Avram to name a place? Especially because the place has other names. And we don't really call it Hashem Yireh. Nobody calls it Hashem Yireh. There's an interesting medrash about that. I'll get to that in a moment. But Avram Avinu's name per se does not stick. So Rashi says, Hashem Yireh Pshutai. If you want to understand the straightforward meaning in this verse, kitargumo. You need to take a look in the Targum Onkelis. Onkelis uses the words uflach vitzali, which means Abraham prostrates and prays. In other words, Avram Avinu wasn't calling a place a name. He wasn't naming a site. He was praying. What was he praying for? He was praying, says Rashi, Hashem Yivchar, Veyire Loyas Hamokim Hazeh. May God see to it, may God see to it that this place will be chosen as the place, Lahashrot Bo Shchinato, the place in which God will cause his presence to dwell. Khan Korbanot. That this should be the site of future offerings for the Jewish people. In other words, Avraham Avinu's prayed that the devotion, that the intensity, that the spiritual magic of this moment should continue to impact history, that it should become a place where Avraham Avinu not only was prepared to bring a carbon, but that this should become the foundation for everything the Jewish people will do in the future. So he prays. He prays, and his prayer is, God, please see to it. 
please see to it that this becomes the site of your future Beit HaMikdash. And of course, Avraham Avinu's prayer is answered. It is the site of the Beit HaMikdash. Rashi goes on to say, what is the meaning of Asher Ye'omer Hayom? Asher Ye'omer Hayom literally translates as, as it is said to this very day. Says Rashi, Sheyomru Liyamei Hadorot. A love. They will speak about this generationally. Future generations will hearken back to this spot and that moment. Baharzeh, they will say on this mountain, Yeroa Hashem La'amai. It's on this mountain, they'll say, God will reveal himself to his nation. So then what's the meaning of Hayom? Hayom means today, not till this very day. So Rashi explains. Hayom is not today, but Hayom means in the present tense. Hayamim ha'atidin, the days of the future, days which are yet to come. Kimo, for example, we find in copious places in the scripture an expression of ad hayom hazeh, until this very day. So there are descriptions of places that are referred to by a particular name or in which something is marked and that continues to be so until this very day. Shakol hadorot habayim, that all future generations, that's us. Hakorim esambikrazeh, when they will read this verse, and we read this verse if we recite morning prayers on a daily basis. Omrim will say, Adayomazeh, that's the holy mountain. This is the ground zero of Jewish spirituality, and it has been since the days of Abraham and Isaac. Only there was some amnesia, and in between, the sight was lost. The locals revered it. They knew something special happened here. But when the Jewish people came to the land of Canaan, they did not know where Yerushalayim was or appreciate its significance and its historical importance. But future generations, after Hashem tells David HaMelech, King David, where Yerushalayim is and where Harabayat is and what that mountain represents and what that city is destined to become, then future generations will say, Al Hayom Sha'omdimbo, on the, today when they stand there, today when we look at that Temple Mount, today when we go to the Kotel, which is the remnant of the outer retaining wall of the Harabayat, and we think of this is the site where Avraham Avinu was prepared to sacrifice, to bring. This is the very site, this is the site where the Akedah took place, where Father Abraham concluded the tenth and final test. It is here that his spiritual potential was actualized. It is here that a Father Isaac reached the zenith of devotion to Hashem. And that we'll talk about later. But this is the spot. This is the first interpretation. Hashem will see to it. The Vilna Gaon has an interesting take on this business of Hashem Yireh. He says, we know there's a famous medrash, the entire Maimorim of Basilagani are based on this medrash, that there's this notion that God's presence was manifest in this world and that Adam, through his sin, of eating the forbidden fruit drove the Shekhinah from heaven, from earth to heaven. 
And then Cain and Abel wrangled, a murder, a homicide was committed, and the presence of God was driven further away. And then there was idolatry introduced to the world, and God's presence is driven even further away, and so on and so forth. In subsequent generations, God's presence was, so to speak, driven to the outer reaches of the proverbial stratosphere. And then it is Avraham Avinu who begins to reactualize the Shekhinah. The Shekhinah's actualization is achieved by Moses, Shvi'i, the seventh to the first. It first happens at Har Sinai, and there is an Akedah connection. But it happens at Har Sinai that Shekhinah ultimately becomes manifest in the Mishkan, the traveling tabernacle of the Jewish people. It continues to move transiently through the decades and centuries until it comes to its final resting, to the permanent site of God's presence, that is the Beit Hamikdash. And so the Vilna Goen says, Hashem Yireh, Avraham Avinu said at this point, God will see to it that the Shekhinah will now come from the seventh heaven to the sixth heaven. And that's the meaning of Yireh. I would presume that the Goen is following the approach of Rashi, which is the approach of the Targum, Ufalach Vetzali, it's just a question of what he's praying for. It's like a prayer where you might make a request. Hashem, Please see to it. Just like you could ask somebody, please see to it that such and such gets done. The Sar Shalom of Bells explained that Hashem Yira means God should see to it that the prayers of the Jewish people should be accepted from this site. And indeed, our tradition ordains that prayer, prayer really means the Shmona Asrei or the Amidah, must be performed with positioning towards Yerushalayim and the Beit HaMikdash. And that ultimately, all of our prayers are proverbially speaking, beamed to the holy mountain called Moriah, and from there, they ascend heavenward. So there's this notion of Avram praying not only for Beit HaMikdash, when it is in its full glory with Karbanot offerings and the service to Hashem being performed, but that this remains the holy site, ground zero, focal point for the Jewish people forever, even during today's exilic times and Be'ezrat Hashem very speedily and in our time with the rebuilding of the third base of Migdash with the coming of Mashiach Bimheira will be Amenu Amen. So this was Avraham Avinu praying for all generations and all time. Now, on a literal level, it still says Hashem Yire, God should see to it that Bahar Hashem Yeira'e, that God will be seen or that something will be seen on this mountain. God will reveal or show something on this mountain. So Rashi introduces a Medrash Haggadah. According to the Maskele David, well, before I get to the, uh, the Medrash Haggadah, I just want to tell you that the Be'er Mayim Chaim explains in the words of Rashi, he says, Hashem Yire, that's vowelized as Chirik, Yire, that refers to L'Shain Trina, Yire, Please see to it. The second word, both are spelled the same way, Yud, Reish, and Aleph, Hey, is Yeiro'e. Yeiro'e, says the Be'er Ma'im Chaim, is the, comes from the terminology of Nif'al. And don't read it, Hashem Bahar, Bahar Hashem Yeiro'e, Hashem will reveal, but rather, 
Hayom Bahar Hashem, today on the mountain of God, meaning until today for posterity, Yerah, there's a comma, Yerah, he Hashem will be seen. So we have this notion of either Bahar Hashem on the mountain of God or Yeyomer Hayom Bahar, they'll say today on that mountain, Hashem Yerah, Hashem will be seen. Okay, so the bottom line is the first approach to this verse is Abraham praying that this site becomes the site of all connection, of all relationship, of all communion with God forever. But Rashi is somehow uncomfortable with simply saying that God will see to it that this will be the place until this very day, adding in the word, Kimo, as if Adayomazeh. So the Maskele David says, it doesn't say Adayomazeh, it says Hayom. And it says Hayom Yeroah. Today it will be seen. So therefore, Rashi introduces a secondary interpretation. A Medrash Agada. Hashem will indeed see. Yeyomer Hayom Bahar, they will say today about this mountain, Hashem Yeroah. Or Hayom Bahar, on, that, on this day on this mountain, Hashem will see. The Medrash is, Hashem yire akeda zu, Hashem will see this akeda, l'sloyach Yisrael to forgive the Jewish people. And as the Maskele of David points out, that's referring to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Shebechol shana of every year. Ula min haparonot, and to save them from any kind of misfortune or impending disaster. And all of that is, so that they will say Hayoyim Hazeh on this day, on this day for all future generations, says the Masculine David. Which day? The day of atonement, the day in which Hashem saves us from evil designs or decrees or schemes. That Bahar Hashem on the mountain of God, the ashes of Yitzchak are seen. And these ashes are tzabur, they are gathered together, a mound of ashes, the oimid, and they are, so to speak, standing ready, lechapora. Those ashes can be seen on the altar that Abraham built, and they serve as an atonement for the Jewish people. So we're going to get into it. This is going to be our segue from the ashes. From the ashes. Whose ashes? Which ashes? What are we talking about here? But before we continue to move forward now with a focus on the ashes, I just want to reiterate what we've learned. Avraham Avinu wants this moment to be remembered for posterity. He does not want this to be a fading moment of spiritual glory. He wants this to be remembered, spoken of, and seen forever. And his wishes are granted. Indeed, in the end, Avraham Avinu has the privilege of us Jewish people davening, praying every morning. In our preamble to the morning prayers, we recite the Akedah. And of course, for any Jew to whom Yiddishkeit is important, to whom Eretz Yisrael is important, to whom Har Habayit or the Temple Mount is important, we are always continuing to think about the first thing that happened there, the first Jewish event on that mountain. And that's the Akedah. In the words of the Amlois, 
who kind of encapsulates the request, the plea of Avraham. He says, Avraham's request and desire was, Tomid Please, God, he said, I want future generations to know what happened here today. There was no audience. There were no spectators. Even Eliezer and Yishmael were left behind. Only Avram and Yitzchak himself were present. I want future generations to know of this. That in all generations of the future, Hashem will see, Hashem will see this mountain and He will be merciful towards us. That's kind of the summation that's made by the Ma'am Lois. Now he goes on to quote a Medrash Rabbah, indicating that Avram's name, or on a literal level, his calling the mountain a certain name, didn't really fade away. The Medrash contrasts the name that was given by Avram with the name that was given by Shem, the son of Noah. He's mentioned in last week's Torah portion as Malki Tzedek, the king who proffers righteousness. He's the king of Shalem. Shalem in Hebrew means intact, whole, or perfectly peaceful. It is said that Shem was a perfect specimen of humanity. In fact, he didn't need a Brit Milah. He was born that way. And so the city was called Shalem by him. Avraham calls it Yira. And Hashem says, both of these tzaddikim are precious to me. And the fact that they chose to call the city names that reflect their spiritual pursuit will not be lost. Yira was conjoined to Shalem and the name of the city for posterity is Yerushalayim. The Ma'am Lois then goes on to quote a Medrash Tanchuma. The Medrash Tanchuma maintains that prior to the Akedah, or perhaps to the prayers of Avram Avinu, the typography of Yerushalayim, and specifically Haram Moriah, was like a lowland, a small hill. He says, however, in the post-Akedah reality, there was a rearranging of typography. I don't know if that meant some kind of earthquake, but something happened. Because the Shechina had appeared there, all the mountains nestled round, and Haramoria became elevated in its region, almost the highest point in that entire area. But more importantly, since we view Har Hamoria as the pinnacle of the globe, the globe after all is a ball, a circle, and you can close any point to make that the top, Har Hamoria is the protrusion, the apex of the globe. The Ma'am Lois says something interesting. He says, I heard people say that with this we can understand the notion that Avraham prayed that the whole world would know about the Akedah. How would they know about it? Nobody was there. And the answer is, they all saw the seismic shift. They probably felt it too. They knew something had happened. They saw typography entirely rearranged. And this is how they would have known. 
He says, after all, the Akedah was b'mokim mutzna in a private, discreet place. Nobody else was there except for Avram and Yitzchak. How would they know? And the Mamloyes, according to Medrash Tanchuma, says, Once they know that this place, was once a lowland, and now, now it's become much higher and taller. From today onward, they would know that this is true. Something of great historic importance happened on that mountaintop. And that's according to the Medrash Tanchuma. Asher Yeyomer, they will say, Bahar Hashem Yiroa. Hashem revealed Himself on that mountain. What did they see? How would they know what the revelation of God looks like? A transformed layer of typography. Now Rashi does not quote this Medrash Tanchuma. And I would like to humbly suggest that the reason Rashi doesn't quote this Medrash Tanchuma is because, if anything, it would be helpful for the first generation, or maybe the second. It doesn't have lasting value. Somebody saw something 37 centuries ago. Shifts in typography do not remain in people's memories. For all we know, the typography of wherever you happen to be now might have shifted over the last hundred years. And maybe initially somebody knew. But these things become forgotten and buried under the sands of time. It does in no way indicate or explain a persistent hayom, today, yeroh, something being seen today. The notion that Avraham Avinu was rewarded and this mountain becomes the spiritual center for the Jewish people, and it always has been, is persistent and ongoing. We all can see that. But then again, we can't see anything. It's a matter of fact, but not a matter of something we see. And so, the Medrash Agoda suggests there is something we see. We see the ashes of Yitzchak. The balance of today's class will be devoted to seeing the ashes of Yitzchak. What in heaven does that mean? Firstly, Yitzchak was never burnt. So he wouldn't have ashes to be seen. Secondly, even if there were ashes, how would they still be seen? When there's fire or ashes, 10 years later, nothing is left. Sometimes it takes a year or two, and things shift. Thousands of years later, nearly four millennia, you're going to tell me there's still ashes? Or as Rashi puts it, that the there's a mound of ashes? What? Where? Which ashes? The Beis HaMikdash was burnt there, a massive compound. There's no ashes. The second Beis HaMikdash was burnt, an even larger compound. You see ashes today? Maybe on some of the stone of the retaining wall, there is some faint vestige of remnants of where there was once fire. Ashes? Nobody has ashes. So a tiny mound of ashes can still be seen by who? What in heaven does that mean anyway? Now the biggest challenge 
is that Rashi is actually evoking this notion in Pshuto Shal Mikra. He's explaining the literal meaning of the verse, although he gives you a bit of a warning. He says, this is Medrash Agada. It's an Agadic teaching, but it's still part of the quilt work or tapestry from which Rashi forms Pshuto Shal Mikra, the straightforward, simplest, if you will, understanding of the literal meaning of the Torah. So on a literal level, on the level that you might teach a child, it can be seen, Hayom today is referring to ashes. The ashes that never were, the ashes that should long ago have disappeared even if they once existed. Unless you think this is an anomaly, meaning Rashi mentions it once as a Medrash Agada, let me share with you that Rashi elects to choose this very narrative as the only teaching, the only explanation of a later verse of the Torah. Consider this. We go forward now to the book of Leviticus. In the final parsha, the final concluding Torah portion of the third book, which is called Bechukotai, there is a collection of calamitous verses. Verses that speak of dire destruction. Terrible, terrible events that will befall the Jewish people. Awful stuff. 49 verses of it. And then, towards the end, we hear of God relenting and being reunited with His people. Leviticus 26, verse 42. I quote, V'zacharti et brisi Yaakov. I will remember the covenant struck with Jacob. Va'af et briti Yitzchak. And the covenant with Isaac. Va'af et briti Avraham. And even the covenant of Abraham, Ezkor. God says, I will remember. And then, the Ha'aretz Ezkor, I will favorably remember the land. Now, there's much to say about this verse. Why is the order inverted? Why do we begin with Jacob and conclude with Abraham? But the one thing I want to focus on is the fact that before we talk about the covenant of Jacob, it says the word vizocharti. God says, I will remember. Briti Avraham, my covenant with Abraham, ezkor. Ezkor in Hebrew is once again, I will remember. Briti Yitzchak is not accompanied by any kind of remembrance. Why? Why in Pshuto Shalmikra? Why is it in the simple, straightforward understanding that even a child should be able to relate to are the words remembrance omitted when it comes to the covenant of Isaac? So Rashi says, Velama spells out the question. Why was remembrance not mentioned with regard to the covenant of Isaac? Elo, rather, Efro shall Yitzchak nire lefanai tzavur. It's because God says, I don't have to remember that. I see that. The covenant of Isaac refers to the Akedah. God says, I see the mound of ashes. 
the ashes of Isaac. Tzavur umunach alamizbeach. Here Rashi goes further than his commentary in our Torah portion, and he says, I see the ashes, heaping pile of ashes on the altar. Which altar is he talking about? My dear friends, this verse 42 is now. This is at the end of Galut. We've suffered all of these verses. We've experienced all of these calamities. All of the suffering has visited the Jewish people. All of the horrors have punctuated our long and storied and painful history. And now, now it's time for Hashem to bring us home. And how is that going to happen? The Torah says, Moshe Rabbeinu says, it's going to happen because of the Zacharti. Hashem promises He will remember. Despite the fact that we have slipped and tripped and made foolish mistakes, despite the fact that sometimes we have done things in profoundly misguided ways, HaKadosh Baruch Almighty God will remember if only we reach out to Hashem with tshuva, with a sense of sincere return, if only we will rehabilitate our souls, God will remember. He will remember Yaakov. They will remember the covenant with Jacob. Briti Avraham Ezker. Hashem will remember the covenant with Avraham Avinu. Yitzchak. He's not going to remember that covenant. Why not? He doesn't have to remember it because he sees it. He sees it. He sees the ashes on the altar. What? Which ashes? On what altar? What in heaven are we talking about? The Maharal of Prague, in his commentary on Rashi, known as Gur Aryeh, he says, Dover ze inyin godol. He says, this is a big thing. This is not something small. This is big. Why is it that the ashes of Isaac are ever visible? It's because Yitzchak, so to speak, self-sacrificed his very life to the measure of divine judgment, in his willingness to be slaughtered and burnt, to demonstrate his virtues, his devotion, his value of Yiddishkeit, his willingness to follow what HaKadosh Baruch Hu, what Almighty God asked for. Yeah, Avram is not taking a little child and abusing him, as the stupid people say. Forgive my verbiage. Yitzchak was a strapping young lad of 40, and his father was 140. You show me how a 140-year-old man can force a 40-year-old man into a position in which he can kill him and burn him unless the 40-year-old man is prepared to participate fully, as did Yitzchak. And that willingness, not to sacrifice your child, to sacrifice yourself, this is something that midat hadin, that the measure of judgment which is sometimes deployed against us, the Jewish people, for our many shortcomings and the foolishness and misguided actions that oftentimes become the narrative of our nation, that this has nothing on us because the ashes of Yitzchak cast a much brighter glow. Gorarya says, This is known to those who really understand. It's good those who really understand know. Can we understand this too? 
My dear friends, today I'd like to enter us all into Maharal's club. I hope and I pray that when we conclude today's class, you will be in the know and you will have discovered the answer to this mystery, the mystery of Isaac's ashes, the importance of those ashes, how out of those ashes amazing things will happen for the Jewish people. Which ashes? Before I continue in explaining the ashes, I want to share with you a number of other sources, just so you know that this is something which is, well, mentioned in various places in our Torah true literature. In the Medrash Rabbah, in Parshat Vayigash, which is chapter 94 of the Medrash Rabbah on the book of Genesis, there is a discussion as to the notion of Jacob's sacrifices. It's written that He brings offerings to the God of Jacob, to the God of Isaac. So why are we mentioning Isaac here? What's the emphasis on, on these blessings that were provided for the Jewish people? Without getting into the complexities of this medrash, I want to teach you that Berechia says it was because he was a Bali Surim, he suffered. But the Rabbanans say that there's this notion of Re'iya, there's something being seen, and that is Ro'im Efro Shal Yitzchak. We are seeing the ashes of Isaac, Ki'ilu Tzobur Agabe Hamizbech, as if they were heaped upon the Mizbech. It doesn't say we're seeing as if we're seeing ashes. It says we're seeing ashes. What's as if, according to the Medrash, is they're being heaped on an altar. The ashes are ashes. We see them as if heaped upon an altar. And that's why Yitzchak, Isaac's name, is mentioned here. Now, Isaac never died at the Akedah, and he wasn't burnt after. The Maharzu, one of the preeminent commentaries on the Medrash says, Af Bechayev Nechshav Shekvar Nisruf. Yitzchak, although at this point is even still alive, it was as if he was burnt. It was considered as if he was burnt. Now Rashi here says, Yitzchak is mentioned because we see his ashes, as if they were gathered in a mound on the Mizbech. As if those ashes were heaped on a Mizbech at the time of the Akedah. And every moment they are remembered before God. It's as if Jacob, a father Isaac's ashes, had been placed by Abraham on an altar, and we're mentioning Isaac, and when we mention Isaac, ashes come to mind. His ashes. The ashes on the altar. What does that mean? What really does it mean? There's a Gemara in Mesechet Zvachim. It gets even more curious. 
The Gemara talks about the Mizbeach that was built by the returnees to Zion. And that altar was built in larger fashion than the altar of the first, first Beit HaMikdash. And the question is, how did they know about the full size of the altar? How did they know what Solomon did not know? So the Gemara says, Omar Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Elazar answers this question, and he says, the Gemara asks further, had they even know where the altar was supposed to be altogether? And the Gemara says, If you talked about the structure of the Beis HaMikdash, the Jewish people who came back to reclaim Yerushalayim and the Temple Mount, were able to make out the schematic of the Beis HaMikdash because there were still foundations left behind, unlike today. But Mizbeach? Where did they know? How did they know where the Mizbeach was? So Gemara Masech Zvachim on page 62 says, Omar Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Elazar taught, Ro'u Mizbeach, they saw. And our sages tell us this means a, in a vision, a prophetic vision. They saw in this vision, as the Marsha says, they saw a heavenly Mizbeach. Bonoi as if it was built. And they saw in heaven Michal Hasara Godel, the great archangel Michael, is bringing offerings and they saw there was a parallel between the heavenly altar and the earthly altar and its coordinates are perfectly lined up and they were able to ascertain where the altar should be built in Zechem Beit HaMikdash. The Gemara then says, Rabbi Yitzchak Nafcha Amar, Rabbi Yitzchak Nafcha says, they didn't see a heavenly altar, they didn't see angels. Efresh Yitzchak Ro. They saw the ashes of Isaac. And they saw it, Munach Baisei They saw it placed in that area. We're talking about an enormous area, by the way. It would take more than one person's ashes. They saw the ashes, and that's how they knew where the Mizbeach should be built, where its epicenter was, and how large it had to be. What does that mean? Isaac was never burnt. And how would they see his ashes? It's not the only time. This is something that people saw. The Gemara Meseches Brachas tells us that an angel saw the ashes. But again, emphasis on the ashes. And here the Gemara speaks about a terrible plague that came upon the Jewish people. And then, and then we hear about the plague relenting. Why does it relent? In the destruction unfolding against the people in a plague of pestilence, Hashem sees and He regrets or withdraws. So the Gemara says, Mayra, what did He see? What caused God to reconsider? Omar Rav. Rav said, He saw Father Jacob. And we know this because it says, Vayomer Yaakov kasher ra'om. Yaakov saw as they, was, as Yaakov saw. The word ra'a shows up there. So the Eitz Yosef says, what do you mean he saw Yaakov? He says he saw the merit of Yaakov. Yaakov represents Torah, the merit of Yaakov. He saw the angels that had been sent to protect Yaakov. Shmuel says, no. He didn't see Jacob or some proverbial thing. 
He says, Efrei shal Yitzchak ra. He saw the ashes of Yitzchak. Shenemar, as it's written, and here we go back to an earlier verse, when Yitzchak asked his father, where are we going? What are we doing? Here's the flint. Here's the wood. Where's the beef? Where is the carbon? Avram responded with prophetic intention. And he said, God will show you. Which could also be understood, God will show you as that lamb. So the Gemara seems to understand this notion of Hashem Yireh, that we can actually see Yitzchak as an offering. We can actually see his ashes. And so the Malach or Hashem saw Yitzchak's ashes and relented. There are other sources, but here I've brought you multiple sources in which we speak about Yitzchak's ashes. And the obvious question is, what in heaven does that mean? How might we say that this is only what's proverbially spoken of, ashes that, that never existed, that are still heaped on a pile, that are still seen? The Maharsha addresses this very question in his Chedusha Godes. The Maharsha is divided in two sections, although printed in the same place, but in different typeface, one larger, one smaller. One is Chedusha Halochas, Navale on a legal level, and the other is called Chedusha Agodes, and that is the Navale, which is on the Agadic teachings of the Talmud. So in the Agadic teachings of the Talmud, the very final one, on page 62, side B, the Marsha says, Efreshel Yitzchak? What does that mean? The Marsha explains, Hainu Efer Oisoi Haseh. That refers not to the ashes of Yitzchak, but it refers to the ashes of the Lamb. Shabah Tachat Efrosho Yitzchak, the ram who was brought as an offering in the place of Yitzchak. Kidechsiv, as it's written, Elokim Yirelahase. Hashem will show you as the ram. Hashem will show you as the carbon. So you as the carbon never happens in a literal sense because Avram raised his eyes wanting to actually bring a carbon to demonstrate his devotion to Hashem, to bring forth that promise from God. And he brings the ram as an offering and he prays and imagines and does it so mindfully and intentfully as if he was doing this to Yitzchak and Hashem accepts it on that level of self-sacrifice and devotion. So that's the first answer of the Marsha. The first answer of the Marsha is there are no ashes of Isaac. These are the ashes of the Karbon. But the Karbon, the offering, the ram, the ram's ashes were in the place of Yitzchak's ashes. So they're called ashes of Yitzchak. Then Marsha offers another interpretation. He says, after all, it doesn't say Ephro shall Karbon. It doesn't say the ashes of the offering in the place of Yitzchak. It says the ashes of Yitzchak. And so the Marsha says an incredible thing. He says, Efro shal Yitzchak refers lefi machashavat Avraham in accordance 
with the mindfulness, with the thoughts, with the intentions of Avram at that time. Hela Avram, it's as if Avram raised up Yitzchak himself. What does the Marsham mean? There's a famous story and teaching in the book of Hayom Yom. And in it, we read a narrative, a little vignette. It's in Parshas Noach, Parshas Lech Lecha, and Hayom Yom, where the Baal Shem Tev was with his disciples in Shul one morning. And he hears two disputants duking it out. And one says to the other in great frustration, acrimony, and anger, I could tear you like a fish. Unless you had the privilege of being in Shul, watching the old men rip the herring open, you might not know what this means. But if you remember the good old days in the Alta Yidin, not the fancy filet herring of the 21st century, the herring, the herring phenomenal, you know, the herring that still had the bones in it, and they ripped the herring open, rip out the bone from the middle of the herring to eat the herring. He said, I can tear you like a herring, or I will tear you to pieces. The Vashemtev was very shaken when he heard these words. And there were occasions when the Baal Shem Tev would elevate his students into a parallel universe, a higher consciousness, making them aware of realities that the naked eye cannot see. The Baal Shem Tev asked his students to form a circle around them. And then, when the circle was complete, he placed his holy hands on the shoulders of the Talmidim, the disciples closest to him. Immediately, they all began to shout in great terror, for they perceived the disputant literally tearing his friend to pieces. The Rebbe's comment on Hayom Yom, quoting the Friedrich Rebbe, is, this demonstrates to us that everything, every word said, every thought entertained, has an actual impact. It makes a difference, quite literally. Only, at times, these are impacts that can only be sensed by those who have higher intuition, those who can perceive things in a more refined reality. Not our 3D reality, but those who can see into a fourth or fifth or sixth dimension. Here's a simple metaphor. Sometimes you're aware of something. Others aren't. You know something about somebody. And you notice anxiety, concern, body language. You notice it. Nobody else noticed it. You notice it. You notice it because you're trained to see these things. Or you notice it because you know what nobody else in the room knows. And because you're the only one who knows that, you're the only one who picks up on it. It's not a spiritual thing, but it is about intuition. And for everybody else in the room, it never happened. And when you say it happened, they think you're crazy. They can deny it outright. None of this was seen by anybody else, but you know what you saw. Now this, of course, is in the frame of the literal. 
It's just a question of picking up on those subtleties. And I share this with you as a metaphor because really and truly, there are higher dimensions of reality that can only be perceived by either animals or people who are able to exist in a higher plane. Sensories that are granted to life beneath humanity or those who are able to break the glass ceiling of human limitation. We see this with Bilam. Although he's a prophet, when God is not speaking to him, he isn't granted those powers. An angel impedes his path, but only the donkey is able to see it. We can take note of it in the story where Elisha comes to a village and the Shunamit, a woman who is not endowed with any level of prophecy, picks up on the notion that this man is special. There's something different about him. How does she know? The animals know. It's imperceptible to anybody else, but the animals sense the holiness and they scurry away before him. There's a certain reverence they have for this person. Animals sometimes have a sensory that people don't have. Rashi explains on the story of Bilam that a donkey doesn't have a mind to lose. We'd crack up. We'd flip if we could see the things that animals can see which doesn't faze them. We who have self-consciousness are only allowed to be aware of a 3D reality. But it's not the end or the absolute picture. So there's this notion of the ashes of Yitzchak. The ashes of Yitzchak were created, says the Marshal, by Avraham. How? Through his act of holy devotion. Because when Avraham Avinu was slaughtering and flaying and dismembering and burning that ram, and he said each time as he was performing this, May it be as if I'm doing this to my own son. Tachat beno, it says. I'll call Aveda Sha'asam Imenu. Avram Avinu did this, marshalling every ounce of his mental and emotional engagement. He was fully aware, fully involved. And in his mind, he was praying to Hashem and the notion of prayer has everything to do with the intention of heart and mind rather than words that are being uttered. He was praying and then he verbalized that prayer, bringing it into this world because speech has a way of actualizing things. Avram didn't just pray it in his heart, he verbalized that prayer. He said, may it be God's will, as if I'm doing this to my son. As if I am now slaughtering that a ram but Yitzchak. As if I am dashing the blood of Yitzchak, not the blood of the ram. As if I flay or skin, not a ram but Yitzchak. As if he's being kindled. And has become ashes. So when Avram Avinu prayed with such intensity, when Avram Avinu thought with all of the wherewithal of his mind, heart, and soul, and prayed that Hashem would accept it as such, he actually created the ashes. Guess what? 
Ashes that can be created in a fourth dimension can still be right there. In fact, the Gemara is very clear in telling us they are. I can't see it. You can't see it. It doesn't mean it's not a part of our world. Hashem sees those ashes as if they're on the altar. The altar is perhaps no longer there. But the ashes are found as if upon that altar. In the same way that the prophets could see Malach Michoel using a heavenly altar to bring korban or to bring offerings, in the same way, the Gemara says in the same breath that they were, were visualizing these ashes. The Gemara doesn't say it's a different kind of reality. Amar Rabbi Eliezer, it was that's what they saw. Rabbi Yitzchak Nafchamer, he says, it was Evrashi Yitzchak This is in the same genre of seeing. This is a prophetic intuition. It's only that Rabbi Eliezer says they saw a heavenly reality, a reality of the angels, which is, so to speak, outside the realm of this world. Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Yitzchak Nafcha says, no, no, it was in this world. Another dimension, in this world. The Bashantav didn't show his disciples something that happened in another reality in Ganeidim. They saw it happening here. Because every word spoken has an impact. Every thought ruminated upon leaves an imprint. It's just that you need very refined sensories to be able to notice those things. Just as there are sounds that only dogs can hear or only teenagers can hear. It's a decibel that other people don't hear and certain sounds can only be heard by certain ears. Some things can only be seen by some people or by God. Yitzchak's ashes continue to be extant. Now here it gets really interesting. If we are to say that these are the quasi-metaphysical ashes created by the act of Avraham Avinu's devotion, it makes sense to say that the ashes are still there. But according to the Marsha, when we're speaking about literal ashes, the first answer of the Marsha, the ashes of the ram, not the ashes of Yitzchak, who sees the ashes today? In other words, the secondary answer actually makes a lot more sense. Because we're talking about a reality that's not part of quantum physics. It's part of our world, like a radio wave. But it's not a physical part of our world. It's not captured by what we call nuclear physics. But if we're talking about the ashes, the ashes of the actual ram, where are the ashes? To answer this, I want to introduce you to a commentary of Nachmanides. Nachmanides has a very, very interesting commentary on the ram's horn. Well, let's begin with Rashi. Rashi quotes our sages in telling us that when the Torah was given, the ram's horn was sounded. And which ram's horn was that? That was Elo Shal Yitzchakaya. 
It's Isaac's ram. Ramban says, Sorry, I didn't understand it. If it was Yitzchak's ram's horn, then it should have been burnt on the altar. After all, in an ascent offering, everything goes on the altar. The ram's horn and the hooves. Everything is Nisraf. So how could Hashem have sounded that horn? Nachmanali says, God, so to speak, refurbished the matter, the matter, the nuclear matter of that shofar. And so to speak, had it sounded. And Ramban says, according to the way I see it, it's actually speaking on a mystical, Kabbalistic level. And it doesn't mean the ram of Yitzchak, but it means the spirit of Yitzchak. Because it says, the entire nation trembled. And we know that Pachad Yitzchak, Yitzchak also was Yecharad, the Yecharad Yitzchak Charadog also trembled. Okay. But the first way the Ramban takes it is that there were ashes, and these ashes were reconstituted. So, in the same way that the ashes could be reconstituted, in the same way, Hashem reconstitutes those ashes. The ashes of the ram that were long ago dispersed, long ago dissolved, Hashem maintains them. You know, the commentaries on, on the Ramban say like, well, like, does God need a chauffeur to blow? Like, really, what does that mean even? God's using the energy of the chauffeur. We could be talking about nuclear physics here. There is some vestige of physicality that links the devotion of Isaac to revelation at Sinai. And so God brings the ashes. Avram left the ashes on the altar, and God proverbially brings those ashes back and those ashes that Avraham Avinu left on the altar are the ashes that Hashem sees in not after remembering the Jewish people because he's seeing the ashes. Which leads us to a final question. And this will be the conclusion for today. So if these are the ashes that Avraham Avinu heaped upon the altar, they would be the ashes either as in the ashes of the ram that was brought in Isaac's stead that Avram left heaping upon the altar that God proverbially reconstitutes or brings back to the altar and it's as if those ashes are there, God sees those ashes there. Or it's the ashes of Yitzchak that are, were represented by the ashes of the ram and it's like the ashes of Yitzchak actually on a spiritual or higher level were placed there. The Rebbe says one second. But the ashes of an offering are supposed to be removed from the altar. Here we have this cornerstone of Jewish faith of Hashem seeing ashes, but in the notion of offerings, the ashes are supposed to be removed. 
So why do we make this big deal out of the ashes still being there? We've been racking our brains to try to figure out some resolution to this problem, to figure out how the ashes could still be there. The ashes never should have been there to begin with. Avraham Avinu was supposed to remove the ashes. It's called Haromas Hadeshen. It's part of the service of the Beit HaMikdash. You bring the offering, and then you remove the ashes. And they're dumped in the Kidron Valley. Why did Avraham Avinu not remove the ashes? So the Rebbe explains it in this fashion. He says the ashes constitute the element of earth or earthiness that remains after the Korban's other elements, namely the gases, the energy, the electrons, and the various forms of liquidity, which were all once together a conglomerate, but now ripped apart by fire. And so the electrons have been released and turned into fire, which consumes all of the hydration or liquid, and the gases are all burnt. And what's left is the ashes. So the other ingredients constitute the actual carbon consumed in the fire. And what's left is the remnants. The ashes are therefore removed from the altar, the Rebbe explains, because they're too coarse, too crass to be elevated by the Mizbeach's sacred fire. In contrast, however, especially if we are to adopt the second approach of Marsha, that we refer here to the spiritual ashes of Yitzchak, Yitzchak's body was so refined that metaphorically, even his ashes were fitting to remain on the altar. You see, Mesiras Nefesh, utter, absolute self-sacrifice to God, refines us in proportion to the extent of the sacrifice made. The greater the sacrifice, the more dedication to Hashem. Mesirat nefesh is a term that's not only used for martyrdom. Mesirat nefesh could be a term of somebody who would forego physical pleasure or material gain. Somebody could say, I had mesirat nefesh for Shabbat. I had an amazing job. I could have been making a lot of money. And I, for, I forgave the money. I lost the money on account of observing Shabbat. That's mesirat nefesh. I gave away something I wanted. A person could say, I was in love with a beautiful woman, but according to halacha, I wasn't supposed to marry her. And I made that sacrifice. I bowed my head in submission to God. Very difficult thing to do. I had mesirat nefesh. The more it means to us, the greater the act of devotion. In other words, it's very simple. If you have a challenge, if you have something that's very dear and near to you, and you want it really badly, in order to motivate yourself to give that up, you'd have to evoke or marshal an extraordinary level of inner spirituality, of inner devotion. In other words, the more we're sacrificing, the deeper the layer that's being exposed in this process, the deeper rhythm of soul that's being, if you will, revealed. And therefore, the more refined we become. 
The devotion that a person had to evoke to do what Yitzchak did without generations of sacrifice, without a crowd, lights, or camera. To be willing to participate because he believed that this was the will of Hashem was so intense, so profound, that it totally elevated him. The notion that somebody would give up their very life for God would refine so intensely that even the physical matter of the body is fit to embrace and embody spirituality. In other words, the material nature of the body, which typically on a normal day is too coarse to reveal the divinity that sustains it, would become, if you will, spiritually transparent. And that, the Rebbe says, is precisely the sublime level of holiness that Yitzchak Avinu attained at the moment of the Akedah. You know, there's a fascinating Pirkei Rebbe Lezer that says Yitzchak was not only willing to die, he actually did die. The Pirkei Rebbe Lezer says he was resuscitated. His soul, because of his devotion, literally took leave of his body. And so Yitzchak not only was ready to die, according to the Pirkei Rebbe Lezer, he did die. And there are other Medrashim which line up with this. In fact, there is even a manuscript of the Dead Sea Scrolls, as they're called, that indicates, because Dead Sea Scrolls are written, we have pieces of scripture and interpretation in between, there's even a manuscript that describes Yitzchak Avinu's tenure in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden, for a time before his body and soul are reunited, indicating that his soul left and actually ascended, proverbially speaking, heavenward. And so, it was in this respect that Yitzchak's sacrifice, not Abraham's, Yitzchak's was even greater than Avraham Avinu. Avraham Avinu was ready to give up his life in Ur Kasdim. Yitzchak actually gave his life. In other words, this episode and its climax in which Avraham Avinu is praying is not Avraham Avinu praying about his willingness. It's Avraham Avinu emphasizing the spiritual achievement of Yitzchak. He says, Bahar Hashem on this mountain it will be seen Yitzchak's sacrifice. This is not Avram Avinu congratulating himself. This is not Avram Avinu in awe of what he accomplished. This is Avram Avinu in awe of his son's accomplishments. And that's what he's praying for. It's not only the climax of Avram's tenth test. Perhaps more importantly, it's Yitzchak's actual Mesirat Nefesh. That's a reality, a truism that can even be seen with more refined sensory. The Rebbe wrote that the episode of Akedas Yitzchak is recited daily as a prelude to our Shachris because the purpose of davening is to dedicate and devote ourselves wholeheartedly to God. So much so that at the conclusion of davening, the holiness of our relationship with God should saturate our entire being, even 
our material existence, as they say, down to the ashes. Every fiber of our existence should be permeated by the love, the loyalty, the dedication and devotion that davening was supposed to have nurtured and implanted within us. And in doing so, in making that devotion a reality on a daily basis, we're able to elevate even the ashes during the course of our days. May HaKadosh Baruch Hu grant us the mercy that we await. May He remember the covenant of Yaakov and the covenant of Avraham. Most importantly, may He look at the sacrifice, the proverbial yet literal ashes of Yitzchak, gather us from all four corners, bring us home to that makom, to that precise location, and grant us the privilege of seeing the third Beis Hamikdash built in its rightful place, and the Mizbeach ablaze again, and from there will come light, from there will come holiness, and from there will come elevation to the entirety of humanity and the entirety of our world. May it happen. Speedily. And in our days. Amen. Thanks so much for joining today.